fairly practical level. I, I don't need to bring headphones. Uh, I just, I like to bring them just because, I don't know, it feels like a real podcast if I bring the headphones. And I mean, I can, sometimes I do put them on for like monitoring purposes. Um, sometimes I don't because on particular days I might, my head be, my head might be real sweaty. And because these are over ear headphones, they, um, it's, a uh, it, it gets gross. And, uh, wait, I always get this, um, paranoid feeling that, um, I try to eat a mm. lot before mm. I came here mm-hmm. because I have this paranoia about like um i even brought a lunch because i fear about like getting grill hungry in the middle of recording mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> i feel like i should have eaten like my cereal bar or something before i started here but well you're gonna be okay <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think it'll be okay okay and, uh although are, are you gonna end up real hungry <laughs> no <laughs> like i ate 45 lunch. minutes in <laughs> no i ate lunch before i came i don't get hungry right. either like some people get uh, uh my sister's like that. They get hungry and they can't do anything else but think about food. Yeah. I can go for a long time without really feeling deprived. As long as I have a little caffeine so I don't get a headache, I could probably go most of the day without eating and often do. That sounds counterintuitive. I think you would, uh, at least to me, having caffeine does give me a headache. Oh, really? I think it may be because I haven't been, I haven't become accustomed to drinking caffeine or like, at least as much as um, in a regular cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I for some reason um, coffee has never hooked me. Mm-hmm. Um, if because I always find myself wanting to be like, oh, the guy who just gets black coffee because um, they're just hot black and that's it. Just because like that sounds like hard ass, or, right? Yeah, uh, something like that. But uh, the effect of having had coffee. It leaves me one dehydrated to kind of um, my head's kind of swimmy. It, mm-hmm. uh, it eventually does give me a headache because perhaps because it does dehydrate. And I've never, I never wanted to be dependent on something like coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like, you know, most 98% of adults are, uh, are, you know, the part of the morning routine is getting coffee and having some to drink in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I don't, for some reason, it just does not um, jive with my body and like the routine I have in the morning for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah, that's that's our house. Right? <laughs> that We get up, we have coffee, two on the weekends, maybe more, uh, you know, two cups. And uh, uh, yeah, it's part of... Um, Part of a pleasurable uh, morning, and then when I'm teaching, I always have to have coffee before I go in the classroom. Have to, too strong. Like to, <laughs> uh, you know, if I teach a morning class, which I haven't done in a long time, which would, uh, but I will again in the fall. So, what? How early? Oh, nine thirty. Not bad. I mean, yeah, that's not that's not bad. Early for it was it was early for me when I was a college student. Now that I'm a um, an adult and a parent, uh, nine thirty feels like uh, a comfortable time to start school. Yeah. For, uh, I got at some point during my life, I got into this mindset where it feels like eight o'clock is the dividing time mm-hmm. from before eight o'clock. <clears throat> you could call that early. And then after eight o'clock, 
is not that early. Do you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, no it's um, I if I were um, more disciplined in my uh, quest to be more productive, I would call eight o'clock sleeping in. Mm-hmm. Waking up at eight o'clock would be sleeping in. Um, but uh, that 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 hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> We don't have to in college. I didn't get up early when I was in in college. Well, I I had to get up. Uh, But because I had to. Right. Like um, my first semester here back in the fall, I had an introduction to education course that started at 8. I remember the very first day, um, I was like, oh, it's – I've transferred to a new school. It's the first day. I'm going to, like, treat myself. I'm going to go out and get breakfast Mm -hmm. before I actually leave to to go to class. And it was like seven twenty mm-hmm. or something when I finished when I was walking out of the the restaurant, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go. And uh, Albany Turnpike uh, just turned into a mess, mm-hmm. and Bloomfield Avenue even more of a mess. And I think I spent more time inching up Bloomfield Avenue than I did actually driving there. Mm-hmm. The forty, the usually forty minute drive to get to Hartford, West Hartford. And it, I, I remember I uh, parked in C lot, mm-hmm. grabbed my things, ran up, try well, I try tried to find a room. That was the first thing. Mm-hmm. Try trying to find a room, and then it was locked. <laughs> it's, although I think that was because um, the teacher didn't have an actual, or maybe it was because that door just locks after you shut it or something um, like you swipe the card and then unlocks so you can let people in and then you close it and right. it's locked again or something right but I'm I was that kid standing outside at 806 a.m. Uh, looking into the in the classroom feeling uh, r- real shamed right well the first day you get some leeway yeah. <laughs> right. uh, how you been what you been doing what have I been doing uh, I've been um, Reading, I've been writing uh, over the summer, and that would uh, make sense. Yeah, uh, yeah, those are the things that I that I really enjoy doing, and uh, and am am paid to do. So, uh, <laughs> so I try to I try to do that during the summer, like you. Uh, um, technically, I pay you to do sort of. Right. Well, um, you know that you pay me to teach. I think you know students pay me to teach. The university um, pays me to uh, to maintain a sort of scholarly profile right right in addition so so that i am a better teacher and also so that um uh they can tell other people that uh you know smart folks work at the university and (laughs) and they they should want to come here so yeah uh you know but the summer is a challenging time um you were you know saying that uh you know trying to stay disciplined and get things done um yeah that struggle is um part of my daily struggle this week at least i've been I have been none too productive. I'm reading a book I don't particularly like. I haven't really wanted to write things. I'm planning for vacation. I'm doing parental stuff. So it hasn't been very productive. Um, but up until, up until a couple of weeks ago, it was a very productive summer in terms of, um, in terms of writing and, and reading. And I still, you know, what do we have? About a month to go. Mm, so yeah. I'll get a little bit more reading done before, um, before school starts. And, uh, and then by mid August, I really transition to more focus on course planning and, and school stuff as opposed to just, um, you know, research and writing, which you can do, uh, in the earlier part of the summer. Yeah. I got to start reading more. Well, I should be reading more. Um, 
being that I'm an English major. Yeah. But uh, I agree. Have you, then, read anything, have you read anything this summer? Uh, okay. Here's the thing. I don't very much read physical books a lot. I used I used to read a, a ton, but in recent years, I've felt like my consciousness is so splintered, and I have almost no attention span. And so it's been quite a few years since I've read a real book front to back. Mm-hmm. The last thing I read, I think, was Bob Dylan's memoir, mm-hmm. Chronicles Volume 1, and that one might have been three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. But I do consume a lot of audio mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a form of podcasts mm-hmm. and audio books. Mm-hmm. The last thing I read, listen, read, was a book by Neil deGrasse Tyson mm-hmm. called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, mm-hmm. which uh, it was good. That was good. Now, here's a question for you. Why, why do you think that is that, um, that you don't read uh, books, like book-length things, any longer? Like what has happened to, to take your attention away from um, or you know, to, to, to limit your attention span so that that's hard to do now? Um, being engaged in uh, frivolous uh, media such as YouTube videos of cats or uh, podcasts or – well, podcasts aren't necessarily frivolous. So, like, I, I want to dissenter that question from saying, or, you know, dislodge that question from saying, if you're not reading, you're not intellectually curious or you're not, um, being thoughtful. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I'm just wondering, like, literally, like, why is it hard for your generation, do you think, or maybe just you, to really invest time in reading? Do you just feel like the payoff doesn't, isn't commensurate with the effort? I think it's because I'm so into um, trying to multitask. Mm-hmm. So um, listening to records or podcasts, it uh, involves one sense, my hearing. But then I can use my other senses to uh, do other things while I listen to it. And in case of audiobooks as well. I spent Since I am a commuter to the university, um, I try I, – every – single every weekday for the past uh academic year i drove you know an hour ish each way to 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 go to class and i would spend a lot of that time say listening to what i've been assigned to read Mm -hmm. because and you know that feels like the ultimate multitasking i'm i'm driving because i can so i can get to class but i'm also listen reading to Mm -hmm. um to the to the stuff i was assigned Right. That, yeah, I, I wonder, and this is, I've listened to audiobooks. I've never listened to audiobooks for teaching purposes or for research purposes, that is, like in lieu of something else. Um, so, in, in lieu of reading for professional purposes. So, I wonder about the usefulness of listening um, for the kind of work that happens in an English classroom. And I, and when I say I wonder, I don't mean I doubt. I actually wonder, um, because I know some students like to listen to audiobooks and I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that, but I think that listening is fundamentally different from reading most likely. And that we sort of, um, as, as you've already said, we sort of activate different parts of our brain doing one versus the other. Um, and so is the work of the English major possible without 
without reading. It, it might be. It might be that we're veering toward a world where we need to, um, we as English teachers need to get comfortable with the fact that um, what we call English does not have to be a book-centered discipline. Um, but, right. But it is right now. Right. Like what if we have an English major who's deaf? I mean blind. Oh, well, and I, I, taught a, I taught a student uh, uh, who was visually impaired um, last semester and it was – so I asked myself this question quite a bit um, because that student would would listen to the material, was very faithful in that way. But it's difficult for a student um, who is visually impaired to maybe do the kind of close analytical reading. The literal having your eye by cl- eyeball closer to the page. To no, no, like, <laughs> no, not, not that kind of close no, yeah, reading, I but the, know, you know, the, the kind of reading where a, po- a poem, let's say, a poem requires sustained attention, rereading. And, and sometimes attention being paid to the literal structuring of the words on the page. Yes, also true. Yeah. And, and so that is simply unavailable to someone who's visually impaired. That doesn't mean that person has nothing to offer to a discussion. They might be more alive to the sound of a poem. They might be more alive to the rhythm of a poem because they are used to hearing things as opposed to looking at them. Um, so there are advantages. But I do think that our discipline is fundamentally um, sort of sight-oriented, yeah. right? Like, it, I mean, it's it's heavily dependent on that particular sense. And so a lot of the, a lot of what we expect people to do is coming from a sighted perspective. And so when people bring, um, an oral perspective, A-U-R-A-L, you know, something they've listened to, to class, it doesn't always match up. And I'm not sure if that's a limitation of the discipline or if that's a limitation of sort of the oral reception of this material, you know, that, that the discipline is what it is and, um, and it some sort of doesn't jibe with the audiobook. Audiobooks are great, but they're great for a number of things that don't include kind of literary criticism. So I think about I think about that a lot, especially given what's happening with reading. People still read. They don't read long things. They're mostly tweets. Uh, well or or our articles. I mean the the you know the 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 site medium, right, is sort of oriented around things that you can read in a specified amount of time. Like, oh, this will be a five-minute read. This is a thousand words. It'll take you eight minutes to get through. And and to think about parceling out your time in those little bits and linking that up to the number of words in something is a very different experience from the kind of expansiveness of, I'm going to sit and read a novel for however long it takes to read a novel. Or I'm going to read, you know, I usually do page numbers myself, like I'm reading this book that I really don't like. I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to get through, through 40 pages today and then I'll cheat and do 30, but I'm going to get through that. And that is not, I don't know how long that's going to take me because my attention wanders because I get bored. The other day I fell asleep. (laughs) Right. And so, um, and so the time was not easily, um, was, it was unstructured time in a way that I think people are, people don't like to spend unstructured time reading. We still have unstructured time, but I don't know if we like to spend it reading yeah. um, in the way that perhaps we used to when we didn't have cat videos. It, for some reason, I I keep thinking I need a lot of unstructured time to, say, do some writing or reading to the point where, like, I don't have a job this summer. I thought I really did think, even though I was taking, like, one online class that ran to like, July, and then I did, like, another, some internship or something for a couple of weeks. 
even though there was a lot of time, say in the first month of June when I was taking just this one class, sure, there's just a few things I have to do every week that's due on Sunday night. You know, beforehand, I kept thinking, man, I'm going to have all summer to like, oh, I'll write 40 screenplays or something, or I'll write a bunch of essays or make a record. Mm -hmm. But then it kept, for one, I didn't do my work <laughs> in a timely manner. But also, even if I did, which I didn't, I I have this thing where it's, if I have one thing to do on a single day, that day revolves around that one thing, even if it doesn't take very long. I just, you know, if I wake up that day, just like, oh, I'm doing that thing today. What am I going to do until then? And then it feels like, even if that thing is very brief, maybe only like 15 minutes, a half an hour, I feel like, oh, so I can't do anything within an hour in each direction of the thing I've scheduled. Mm -hmm. Because, oh, I will have to like get ready. And then, you know, I have to like, if I'll have to leave the house, um, drive there, that takes a bit of time. Um, maybe I might have to be in a waiting room for a bit, uh, fill out paperwork, like say if it's a doctor's appointment or something. And I just, and then it becomes more, less about me thinking about the particular th engagement I have scheduled and more about the time surrounding the engagement, engagement where I have to like, think about all the, like getting ready and leaving. My mind is occupied the entire day and I don't get a lot done before then of anything I, I would want wanted to have to get done. Right. That, you know, the, um, the, your problem, I, I don't think is a unique one at all for people of lots of different generations. And I, well, I certainly don't have a solution, but, um, one thing I learned when I was in graduate school and I was reading all the time and, um, you know, had to read a certain number of books for my district, my doctoral exams, which were, let's say, a year away. So I took my exams in February of 2004. So February of 2003, I really started to crank up the reading. Um, and um, I would say, okay, between 9 and 12 this day, I have to read X number of pages of, let's say, Moby Dick. So I, you know, the schedule went backwards. If I have to read 100 books by next February, then what am I going to do today? And I had a schedule that mapped all this out. And I had to stay on the schedule because if, if, I, if I got off schedule, well, then the reading was just going to start piling up, mm -hmm. right? And I'm the kind of person that doesn't like things to pile up. And so I would make sure that the first thing I did, I would take my son to the babysitter. I would drop him off. I would go to a cafe. I bought myself a coffee and a scone because it's hard work reading Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. uh, and then I would spend as many hours as I needed to spend getting through those pages to check my box for the day. Mm -hmm. And so if, if, the, if your one thing to do for a day takes 15 minutes, you need more than one thing to do for a day. If your one thing to do for a day is read a third of Moby Dick, that's a day. I'm telling you right now, that's a 600 page, that's 200 pages of reading and dense reading at that. And you're taking notes afterwards. Um, and so w what I learned in graduate school was both the discipline to sort of force yourself past the finish line. Like if it says 200 pages, you got to read 200 pages. Mm. You can't, you can't cheat because ultimately that cheating will tell. It will show up somewhere. I believe that. <laughs> I believed it then. I believe it now. <laughs> In all things, like if you cut this corner, um, you will know you cut that corner. And even if the professor never finds out, even if your committee never finds out, 
you'll know. And that bothers me. And the other thing I learned was there is no wasted time. As Thoreau says, as if one could kill time without damaging eternity. Um, you know, meaning like if you're wasting Maybe may Emerson. Okay, so they're all the same. I should know. <laughs> they're not all. They're not all the same. But but you know the uh, um, you can't just blow off fifteen minutes and think that it has no impact. And I'm not accusing you. I'm talking about myself. Like okay. I try to discipline myself in that way, saying like, you know, these fifteen minutes. You know, if you're if you're just scrolling through Twitter on your phone, and I'm not a big Twitter person, but it's a, it is a Neither black one. hole. It's a black <laughs> hole. Once you go on there, you know, it it the time is gone. So I still, to this day, carry a book with me wherever I go and a pencil because if I have 15 minutes, that's what I should be doing. I should be reading a book. I should be doing something that gets me closer to whatever my sort of you know, general goal is at that moment. And um, so I, in graduate school, I always had the book I was reading, always. Mm. And that meant, oh, I've got 15 minutes to wait for a doctor's appointment or – my son's at the playground and he's happily engaged. Okay. Actually, he wasn't at that. He was, well, he was, he was less than a year old at that time, but this is a chance for me to, right. to, to do. And at the end of a day, and I'm sure you've experienced this, one always feels much better when you've produced, right? When you've like, you didn't just do that one thing, but you like, oh, you know, I'm really happy with the fact that I did this today. And when one takes stock at the end of the day, you're never happy with that time you blew off, mm. right? And again, I'm not accusing you. I'm talking about myself. Like, I cannot believe I wasted an hour doing that bullshit. Can we, can we curse on this? Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. That's right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so that's um, you can say I, anything you want on here. All right. <laughs> so I try to remember that all the you can time. Curse. Admit to a crime. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. I have no crimes to admit to. <laughs> um, but. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's such a challenge, and you know your brain is wily. You can outsmart yourself. So, like, if you give yourself a rigid to do list, you can be like, "Well, I can, you know, avoid that, do that tomorrow." And um, you just have to you have to give yourself ample opportunities to be good, yeah. right? So, like for me, that means the computer and the phone they stay in there. Yeah, you know, like when I go sit in the spot where I read, my couch in my living room, those things stay away from me. Because otherwise, they'll be buzzing, dinging, calling me, you know, yeah. demanding that I pick them up. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's – those challenges are are there for everyone. I am grateful that I was raised in an era when I didn't have those distractions because I see my children and I see people of your generation and they've always had the distractions. And in a sense, they're um, they're just much more closely tied to the electronic world that we all inhabit now. And I feel like it's harder for people of your age and younger to break away than it is for people of my generation. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I sense that it is, you know? Do you feel that way? Like it's just hard to completely disconnect for an extended period of time? Um, yes, at least now. But I remember I grew up um, in a time where I don't think – I had an internet connection till I was maybe 10, 10 years old. Okay. And I didn't get my first smartphone until I think I was 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. It was my senior year of high school. Okay. I remember I would, before then, I had a lot of time that I did spend, like, say, reading, doing things that 
were more, where it seemed like I was more invested in the thing I was consuming, like a book, or literally just sitting in a room and listening to records and not doing anything else. Not multitasking. Yeah, not multitasking. Since then, I have felt that was probably the straw that broke my uh, camel's brain. And <laughs> now it just my, like I said, my consciousness is just like splintered and uh, my brain is never where I feel like it should be. Mm-hmm. I can't, I yearn to perhaps train my brain to go back to that time. That's really interesting. You, you, um, you know, monotasking versus multitasking. And the, you know, so there's one key division um, between an older generation and this generation. And I would also say the idea of training our brains is, um, I really agree with you, even when the devices are over there, mm. you know, as I gesture to the, to, you know, somewhere far away, um, they're That's still, Japan. That's Japan. Right, they're <laughs> still, but they're still with us. Yeah. Right. Like our brains, I, and there's been a lot of research on this, you know, have, have these devices rewired our brains? Do they activate certain pleasure sensors that we now need, um, pinged? For us in ways that, that, uh, you know, only these devices can ping them. And, uh, so even, even when we put things away, we're still, we're still craving it. Mm. Uh, and that's, that piece to me is troubling because I have felt the same kind of fog and the same kind of, uh, um, like inability to concentrate that I think you're describing. Um, not that we have the same experience, but we have sort of similar reactions. And I've talked to other people who've had the same, you know, uh, feelings. And I didn't used to feel that way. And I don't particularly like it. So it's a strange situation where we are all um, sort of bound to these devices or technologies that seem not to satisfy, right? Mm. And and yet um, most of us are still bound to them. It's a peculiar situation to be in because I don't remember this feeling of, dissatisfaction to the same degree, uh, in a, in an earlier moment. Um, you know, like when I was monotasking, I never felt like, gosh, this just isn't great. But now that there's this device that, that takes my attention, it connects me to the world, but it also requires so much of me. Um, that malaise feels much more present for me and it feels widespread. Like it's not just me. Everybody seems to be exhibiting traits of this, like, uh, you know, exhaustion and dissatisfaction. And I'm not going to lay that all at the device, uh, at, at the feet of our devices, because um, we're participants in that. But it's peculiar. It's a peculiar time to be alive, having been alive in a different time, hmm. because you can feel the difference in yourself. And it's uh, not pleasurable. No. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so the, the, the answer to that is um, uh, I always tell myself, like, we'll just get rid of the, the device. But then I think of how much of you lives on that device. Exactly. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Sorry, I have no answers on that one. We just, <laughs> we just. So we do have to read more of Thoreau and Emerson, so we can. Why, my colleague Bill Major, who teaches in Hillier College and is one of my very good friends, does an experiment every year. He teaches Thoreau, where he says to students, "Oh, I thought you meant he does. He go lives in Walden." No, <laughs> no, Bill, Bill has a smartphone just like you, but Bill says to us, let's say he teaches on a Thursday. He said, all right, we've read Thoreau. I'll give you extra credit. 
if you give me your phones for the weekend. So we'll see you again on Tuesday. So you give me your phone for five days. I'll lock them up. You know, I'm not going to look at them or anything like that. I want you to live without the phone. Mm. And tell me what and you have to write about what you experience with that removal. Now, this isn't like going to Walden Pond, but in a sense, in the 21st century, it is, right? Yeah. Like just that very act of disconnecting um, is, is the beginning of a simplification and a removal from the mainstream that Thoreau wrote about. Mm. And Bill published this work in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. It's kind of a, an, an essay talking about students' experiences. Um, now, is this available on audiobook for me? <laughs> no, 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 you have to Google it. Okay. It's called Thoreau's Cell Phone Experiment, but it's short. It's a 2000, it'll take you 10 minutes. Okay. You know, it's, okay. you could read it on your phone. Okay. Um, but it, students record a sense of discomfort and there's a pervasive, there's pervasive FOMO when you don't have a phone, yeah. right? Like what's happening that I don't know about. Um, but maybe that like learning to, learning to accept one's inability to, experience everything like life is FOMO you know you're always missing out there's always something cool going on somewhere that you're not partaking in always mm -hmm. and so phones bring that to us and remind us of that fact but what if we weren't reminded of it what if it was like hey that's the way the world goes around I'm doing this here and it doesn't matter what's happening somewhere else I'll hear about it later yeah uh so you know I'm, I'm a believer Benson I'm gonna um I'm gonna take that phone out in the uh, parking lot and uh, run my car over it, <laughs> except that it costs so much money. I just can't bring myself to do that, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but, but I, but I do, um, the things that you're experiencing are things that I'm experiencing are things that your classmates are experiencing and they are fundamental. If someone who might be an English teacher someday, they are problems for how we do what we do. Yeah. Um, it's just a straight up problem. And yeah. um, as, as people who are invested in language and words and reading and thinking, we all need to think about how do we adapt and where are our lines in the sand? You know, where do we say, no, we're not, we're not going there. Um, we're, you know, we're not going to completely forego reading or we're not going to um, completely abandon teaching texts longer than um, so many pages or we're not going to, you know, convert our class to, you know, completely audiobooks or something like that. Um, do we have any lines? Do we lose something if we don't draw those lines? Like those are, those are questions I think about a lot. My colleagues think about a lot and the next generation of teachers are going to have to think about a lot. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. You're from your Virginia, right? I was, I was born in Washington, D.C. and I lived the first four years of my life in uh, Maryland and then moved to Virginia in 1979 when I was four years old. And so, um, identify that was home my parents still live there and uh you know went through went through school in virginia so i think of virginia as home so which part of virginia i grew up in stafford county which is about 40 miles south of washington dc okay so it, it's within the orbit of um of the capital but it was especially in the 70s was far enough away that um we were not <clears throat> we were not part of the the inner ring of su suburbs now it's DC is much bigger. It's very different. Mm -hmm. Stafford is not a distant suburb. When I grew up there, it was a distant suburb. It'd be like living in, golly, I don't know, uh, you know, compared to New York, um, it would be, you know, like living past where the train stopped. Oh, okay. You know. 
Not right. in terms of distance, but in terms of sort of remoteness from from the metropolis. Right. Okay. And uh, where'd you go to school? I mean, undergrad. Yeah, undergrad. Yeah, I went to the University of Michigan from uh, ninety two to ninety six in Ann Arbor. In Ann Arbor, that's right. And uh, wonderful experience. And uh, um, they've been trying to get back to Ann Arbor ever since. <laughs> back home again in Ann Arbor. Yeah. Uh, or back home again in Michigan. And then you went to, I've, as if I recall correctly, you went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for right. your graduate work. Mm-hmm. Right? You yes. earned your master's and your uh, doctorate. Yes. There. Yep. In English. That's right. In, yeah. all, all degrees in English. All degrees, in, although, you know, by the time you do a PhD, it's a little more specialized. So um, mm-hmm. the master's in English, the PhD is in, um, from the Department of English, but it's really focused on antebellum American literature, um, meaning, you know, pre-1865 American lit. Were you always a big reader growing up? Yes. Yeah. I uh, um, was a, um, a relatively early reader and a pretty voracious reader as a kid. Um, and I always... Uh, I always liked to think of myself as someone who read the classics um, and would purchase books that were marked as classics when I was young, like at the book fair. No. I would um, – that's what I that's what I sort of gravitated towards. And I didn't always read them all, but I did a lot of reading like Charles Dickens and um, um, trying to think about other stuff. Mostly like I remember reading Dickens classics as a kid and then read the standard kid stuff, you know, Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia and, and books like that. And I also just loved history, always have, still do, and um, read a lot of historical biographies of presidents and and leaders, um, you know, from around the world, wars, you know, military history interested me a great deal. And growing up in Virginia, there was both civil war and revolutionary history very close to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time, um, reading about that and baseball. Um, I was and am a huge baseball fan and, uh, and now my, you know, my son plays baseball and we could talk about that together. So I read a lot of baseball books, both fiction and nonfiction as a kid. And those are still the sections I go to in the library. I go to the history section. I go to the, you know, I I really don't read a lot of literature um, for pleasure anymore. Mm. For my pleasure reading is either sports, uh, is nonfiction, either sports or history. Um, can I ask, uh, is, was there, what influenced your decision to go to the University of Michigan? My parents went there, always wanted to go there. Oh, okay. So um, I had, uh, I had applied to several schools as an undergraduate um, and I, well, only only three. Nowadays, people apply to 28 schools. We applied to, or I applied to three schools, Northwestern University in Chicago, University of North Carolina, and Michigan. And um, my my parents deigned to drive to Chicago from Virginia so I could interview at Northwestern. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a sportscaster when I was in high school. And Northwestern had the best journalism school in the country, still does. Um, a lot of ESPN folk who don't go to Syracuse go to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. A lot of sports journalists have gone there. And... Um, Ultimately, I got I got into those uh, all three of those schools, and I just had had grown up with Michigan alums for parents. Had always wanted to go to Michigan, had dreamed of going there, and um, and did so. You know that my reason for going was that I had uh, I'd always just wanted to, as opposed to like feeling it like it was the best fit. I didn't feel that um, it wasn't the best school. Northwestern's a stronger institution, at least in terms of the rankings. I mean, it's not a big difference, but I always just wanted to go to Michigan. So I did. And I have no regrets about that. <laughs> <laughs> In my case, uh, me choosing a place to go to school, it's more about um, 
Like, is it close? Yeah. <laughs> I did not want to be close to home. I mean, University of Virginia is an excellent school. You know, Michigan, North Carolina, Virginia are all really good public institutions. And um, I wanted to leave Virginia. I, I did not want to be part of the fraternity scene at the University of Virginia mm. um, because it's very old, white, Southern. And that is not my upbringing. Um, and I was I was wary of that. Uh, even at age 17 when I, when I went to college. So Virginia is an excellent school, but I, I did not want to be close to home. Um, and I didn't want to see anybody from high school and college. I yeah. really, I just didn't. And that mission accomplished. When I say my, my criterion for choosing an institution is proximity, it's more because, um, we don't have a lot of money to, um, throw around for, for, for me to go to school. Sure. Even really. Um, and, but we also don't have, like t- the time or money and that would go into paying for housing, mm-hmm. paying for driving me to or flying me to wherever I would have gone mm-hmm. that might have been far away. And you know, I've never even lived anywhere outside of my hometown. It's always um, bemused me that, first of all, like people have the resources to – go to school somewhere in some faraway land, mm-hmm. but also that they would want to, mm-hmm. I, I suppose, because one of my majors here is film. And as much as I would have liked to go to, say, the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts, I also know that that's the exact opposite side of the country. And there would be just a whole mess in terms of logistics of getting there, getting my things there so I can live there while I go to school there, if I did go to school there. Maybe that's just um, a uh, product of my circumstances, but Mm -hmm. I always felt just subtly jealous, I guess subtly jealous of people who um, had would have the opportunity, the chance to do something like that. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing opportunity, and you know the uh, um, my parents were uh, both paid for college out of their own pockets, and in the 1960s, <clears throat> when that was much easier to do, I will say there are a variety of reasons that it is much more difficult to do now than it was for them, or even in my age. Um, you know, like in in my day, I could have conceivably, if I'd gone to an in-state school, paid my way through college. It would have been five six thousand dollars a year. And in, in 1992, that was, that was doable. You know, one could work a job and get five or $6,000 a year. I remember um, reading something about when Ken Burns, the documentarian, mm-hmm. he went to Hampshire College in Amherst. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, of course, it was uh, many years ago. And he paid his way through school, but just by working at a record store. Right. And from what I could tell, it was probably part-time. Mm-hmm. You know, but of course... That was back in a time when, you know, tuition and such wasn't inflated. Right. And he, he, he was able to get by doing that. Right. Yeah. I mean, institutions now are very, they're structured very differently than they were in the 1960s. Some of that has to do with access, which is a really good thing. Some of that has to do with, um, uh, you know, the fact that student services are so much more a central part of what institutions offer mm-hmm. nowadays than they were before. Um, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, state and um, state and federal government have really taken money away from universities deliberately um, so that 
the the burden of paying for school falls more and more on individuals as opposed to the collective. And um, you know, my politics are very strongly collective oriented. And um, I think it's a shame that we don't do more for public education in this country. And this, of course, isn't a public school. I'm not talking about anything that would benefit me as a teacher, but just to benefit the populace. Um, state institutions should be as close to free as possible for the residents of the state, period. Yeah. And uh, we don't do that in Connecticut. We don't do that in most of the states of the country. Um, so it, it was an extraordinary gift to be able to go away, to have those resources um, you know, through my parents. Uh, and I worked in college, and um, but they, my parents paid my tuition. So yeah, that's a huge uh, benefit that not everybody has. The great thing about going away was in managing those logistics, though. So I said, like, I left home at 17 and have never returned home except to visit, right? Like, um, you know, like I, I've stayed away. And so I had to figure it out. You know, like I got sick, I had to go to the doctor. And you didn't even return home for the summer? In I, okay. Oh, you're right. So two summers I returned home. So by age 19, I was done. Um, okay. I, my freshman and sophomore years, I came home. Um, after my junior year, I got a job in Detroit. And um, senior year, got a job, same job in Detroit, and then got a full-time job. So I loved the independence that that provided and this the sense like okay i can pay an electric bill like this is not rocket science you know like <laughs> I, I can i can get my car fixed i can i can figure this out not, my parents and i have a very good relationship and they were always supportive of me including financially when if there was an emergency when i was in college but my goal and this was the goal they gave me was to be independent as soon as possible both both sort of physically but also economically and um i'm I'm fortunate that my parents did so much to help me, um, but I, it was always with the understanding that that the uh, the tap was going to be cut off ASAP, and um, and so I appreciate both those things, right? Their generosity and their insistence that the generosity had like a a, a hard stop mm -hmm. at age 21 after four years of college. Everything else was my problem, and um, uh, that's not to minimize the generosity, but but the independence was a really crucial piece. So I liked going 12 hours from home. I didn't. I didn't have a car until my senior year, and I, um, you know, I couldn't get home. So it, my parents brought me home at Christmas every year, and that was it. So uh, uh, I loved that. I also loved going somewhere far, far away where I met a whole lot of people I'd never met before. So, for example, growing up in like Stafford, Virginia. Like a smuggler Virginia, or a princess well, no, or, like a, like, or a big like walking a Jewish carpet. Person? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, well, not like Star Wars, but it was a galaxy far, far away. I grew up in, in Stafford and uh, I, didn't, I didn't know a single Jewish person. And then I went to Michigan, which is almost 25% Jewish. And suddenly I knew a lot of Jewish people. And, and this was not a troubling thing. Like I, I wasn't raised in an anti-Semitic home, but I'd never met people who didn't sort of have a um, a familiarity with Christianity oh. and a Christian background. And I wasn't like a Bible thumper. I, like I wasn't there trying to convert people, but that was my orientation. Like I'd always gone to church. I just thought, I imagine my experience was universal, hmm. which is not atypical for a relatively sheltered 17-year-old, but, um, but I was disabused of that notion very quickly. And so... Michigan was a good school academically. I was surrounded by smart people, but the best thing about it is that it was it was a place where there are lots of different people. You know, there there were kids from Detroit, a largely African American city, um, who were in my classes. I didn't have classes with African American kids in Stafford, so I grew up white, Christian, sheltered, 
and um, educated parents. I didn't grow up in a home that was backward or or southern in sort of like its politics. Like we weren't we weren't racists. Um, and you know, my mom, my dad's from New York, my mom's from Michigan, but um, but I had no idea about mm. the world. You know, like the people who inhabited it, <laughs> and so f- for for exposing me to that, um, I'm forever grateful to to the university. Like it's just a remarkable place where um, y- where I was forced to become a citizen in a very different way, and uh, you know that experience was not always comfortable, but it was extraordinarily valuable. As someone who's currently an undergrad, and if I fall into teaching because I will be having a degree in film and English. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which I would say has some practical use in, a, in this, in that would, that might have practical use. I might have to go to grad school to say, get my master's so I could continue teaching. I've never really understood what it means to find a place to go to, school again after earning a bachelor's especially because you know again the logistics of not even like going to a place for undergrad that might that is like farther than an hour away from me what influenced your decision and what was your experience um choosing and then matriculating at the university of north carolina chapel hill um well that was after about two years out of undergrad I knew that I wanted to go back to school. I felt like there were a lot of things um, that I wanted to know a great deal more about in terms of um, literary study. And then I began teaching, I uh, taught high school for a year. So I, my first year of school, I was a, a writer for a software company in Cambridge, Mass. I moved there because um, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, is uh, is from Boston. She got a good job in Cambridge, so we moved to Cambridge, and which is a great place to live. So... Worked as a tech writer for a year because I couldn't find a teaching job. Finally found a teaching job, taught high school for a year. And after that year, I knew that I wanted to teach at a higher level. Um, I enjoy teaching. I love it. Uh, but I did not want to be doing things like, say, um, getting Tony out of the bathroom because he was doing drugs in the bathroom or right. um, teaching seven pages of John Steinbeck's The Pearl at a time in my freshman English class. I was impatient. I was young and impatient, but I, um, but I just didn't. I did not want to be responsible for those kind of things. Mm. I was interested in the in the in the work, and um, this classroom management stuff really grated on me quite yeah. a bit. Mm-hmm. So, I started thinking, you know, what do I want to study? I wanted to study Southern literature, and because I was from the South, and uh, um, and was was really struggling at that time. Um, in retrospect, to sort of figure out what it meant to be from the South and because I'd gone to the North as for school and people hated the South. <laughs> and I was, I was confused. Like, because again, I said like, well, my family's not, we, you know, we don't, we're not in the KKK. We're not, you know, we're not Confederate sympathizers. Like, what, why am I being teased? And, uh, for being Southern and, and I, I don't speak with an accent. I didn't then. Um, I didn't think of myself as ignorant and don't now. So I was, I was confused as to some of those stereotypes and became defensive about them. And so I really wanted to study Southern literature. Well, the best places to do that are, as you might be uh, uh, not be surprised to learn, are in the South, and especially University of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, had a, a guy teaches there named Fred Hobson, who was a um, really important figure in Southern Lit. 
there were other good schools, Vanderbilt, Georgia, Duke, um, that uh, I applied to. And actually, Boston University has a really renowned Faulkner scholar as well. So I applied to all of those places for graduate school. Um, but UNC was always my first choice. And, uh, and I, you know, I had visited there when thinking about going to undergrad as well and knew that I liked the place. So my wife got a job down there. We moved to North Carolina and I taught school in North Carolina for a couple of years thinking that my goal was to eventually go to school at UNC. And, um, we love living there. My wife had a great work situation. So when I got into UNC, I was extraordinarily gratified. So I would say that, you know, the, the reason I chose UNC in the first place was because, um, I thought it would be a good fit for what I wanted to study, which as it turns out, wasn't Southern literature, right? That was the goal, but I didn't end up doing that. <laughs> um, but the, the, um, the reason that I stayed and enjoyed it so much was because it was just a perfect uh, situation for my family. Every person's situation is different. You know, again, I was married. I got married relatively young and was already married at the time I went to graduate school. So thinking about um, a situation where both my wife and I could realize our dreams professionally was important. Um, and UNC provided that. Um, and the other thing UNC provided was a, you know, it was a top 20 PhD program. And, um, that meant that I could get a job when I left, <laughs> like, you, you know, lower ranked PhD programs simply do not place people in tenure track positions now. And they certain, even in the two thousands, which was a better time to be hired as a professor, it was still really hard to get jobs. So I felt like I needed to go to a, um, a, a top program and, uh, and UNC was the best place I got into. So, uh, I didn't get into Duke, which, <laughs> you know, so, but that's all right. I hated Duke already. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, the decision really was, was, was based on those two things, based on my family situation and based on, um, my professional ambitions. Were I looking for a degree, like, let's say I was, I wanted to stay in the classroom as a middle school or high school teacher, I would go to the cheapest place around. Right. How, mm -hmm. Because like the, the imperative would be different. You know, I was going for a professional credential, need a PhD to professor to be a professor. I wanted to be a professor. This is the best chance for me to become a professor. And it worked, you know, that part worked out um, mostly because of uh, me, but a little bit because, of you, you know, mm -hmm. UNC helped. Mm -hmm. um, so every person's situation is going to be different in that respect. Um, but like I said, if I, if I had stayed in Massachusetts, loved teaching high school in Massachusetts, I would have gone to UMass Boston mm. because it was cheap. Yeah. And I would have, and they had a good program and I would have gotten a master's degree there over the summers and my high school would have paid for it. Mm. And that's how I would have chosen a program. Yeah. You know, what's, what's the least amount of fuss for me? Um, but I wasn't, again, my situation was different at that time. So the ambition was always to receive a doctorate so you could, begin teaching at a university level, right? Yeah, after after a couple of years of, of public school teaching, yeah, that was my ambition. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but uh, so the usual progression for people is like bachelor's, master's, and then a PhD, but you don't necessarily need a master's to get a PhD, right? Different programs do it differently. Uh, UNC still gave a separate master's and PhD, but when they admitted me to the program, the assumption was that I would continue for the PhD. I was admitted to the graduate program, mm -hmm. and you have to fulfill certain requirements for a master's degree, but they always assumed that I would 
that I and my classmates, there were 16 of us who were admitted to the program, um, actually 12, f- I think five people came in already with masters. Um, the end goal was the PhD. Mm-hmm. Some people left. Some people decided this isn't for me, and they they left with a master's. Um, but uh, that was why we were admitted. Some schools don't even do a master's. Mm. You know, I think um, Duke is actually like this. It's a five year PhD program, so they admit you with a bachelor's degree, and they they want you out as soon as possible with a PhD. Um, and they really try to, uh, at least at that time, they really tried to push their students along to get through in five years. Maybe six. Right. Okay. As someone who um, is in a program to receive a certification to teach, I'm trying to learn more about um, the the uh, ins and outs of what it what that means. Because from what I can tell, from what I've heard, but never confirmed, because I can't. I don't think I can. For some reason, I look for the information, say online, but I can't find it. If I were to so if I got my undergrad degree in English, along with that certification, I could begin teaching in high school. That's what the certification is for, yes. um, for secondary. But then it's, at least in the state of Connecticut, where I live, it's, what is it? It's assumed that I will need, you're required to earn your master's degree, but is does it have to be a master's in education? No. It doesn't? No. Because um, if I were, I don't want to say relegated to teaching, but let's face it, um, me with a degree in film trying to break into the sh- into show business, that, that's, that's probably not going to work out. If I were to uh, be a teacher for most, for most of my time, I was thinking I would, like a ha- sooner or later I will graduate with my bachelor's in film and English. And then maybe not want to stay teaching secondary education for for a long time. <clears throat> and so I had this plan that if the thing I, I thought was correct in that the master's degree you earn to continue teaching need not be in education or even related to the field in which you teach at the school, then maybe I would... Um, get a master's degree in film production and then continue to get a PhD in English. So at the university level, I could feasibly teach both film and English. I mean, it all depends on the university yeah, um, and uh, whether that kind of credentialing would work. Um, I will say that I think the key... So a master's degree is a master's degree in terms of I have mastered the craft, right? <laughs> well, in terms of your tenure ability in a in a public school, right. you know, like to be a to have a permanent certificate, you need to have a master's. And I uh, the subject area, to my knowledge, does not matter. Um, the issue is, or might be, whether or not your school will pay for it, and if your school is going to pay for it or even help pay for it, probably they're going to want you to be getting a master's in the subject area that you teach at that school or in, or in education. So while any master's would work for, for purposes of increasing your pay and of allowing you to be a, have a permanent certificate, it might be that um, whoever's paying for the degree will have something to say about that. Of course, if you pay for your own degree, nobody can say anything. Um, right, but right. but uh, um, 
one of the attractions of having a job and then going back for a master's is that oftentimes whatever job you have will at least contribute to that credential. So that could be one stumbling block um, for that plan. Otherwise, though, it, it's a great way to sort of combine your long-term ambitions with your short-term situation. If there are programs <laughs> in film production here in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, there is one uh, graduate film program at Sacred Heart University, hmm. which was actually co-founded by uh, Justin Liberman, who, okay. who uh, he was here for a couple of years teaching right. film. The late was lamented the, Justin Liberman. He was a program yeah. director of the the cinema program is called cinema here. That's the nomenclature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's one, there's one that I know about. And then of course all the, um, like Columbia's and the whatever's, um, there are like, or USC, um, any big film school where people go to do undergrad, probably also have graduate programs. But of course, uh, given my, uh, limited, uh, resources, or pensions for uh, going twenty more than twenty miles from my house. I would think if I were if I were really serious about earning a master's in film production, it would probably be at Sacred Heart University. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, ideally, um, if you had a job, you could you could uh, move somewhere closer to Bridgeport because then you'd have the resources to uh, to afford an apartment or something like that. And yeah. yeah, that would make it easier. You know, if you if you taught and um, went to school closer to Bridgeport, that would make your life easier than commuting from where you are now. Right. I guess you're a little closer to Bridgeport and Torrington, but it's, yeah. you know, it's a long, it's still a pretty long haul. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got to get my life together, guys. Yep. <laughs> Brian, I don't know what to do in my life. Yep. Yeah. Well, you're young. You've got time to figure that out. Uh, youngish. Uh, yeah. I didn't know either for a while. Huh? You know, like I would say late 30s. Kind of when I knew what I wanted to do. So you got a little time. Uh, it's uh, you just need to pay the bills until then. I'm 23, Brian. It's the time is dwindling. Uh, uh, no, you've you've got a long, seriously long time. I didn't even get this job till I was in my 30s. So um, yes, but um, I will graduate with a bachelor's degree and have no health insurance. So um, you can be on your parents' plan until 25 now, right? 26. Oh, okay. Which is when I will be graduating. Oh, Brian. So. But you're going to get a job as soon as you graduate, so you don't have to worry about that. Am I? Yeah. But we, we can't know for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is making me reflect too much on myself. Oh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> this makes for great radio, guys. A guy just feeling sorry for himself. Uh, you can edit that out. <laughs> no, I tend to keep all of it in. <laughs> Anything else? No, no, no. No? You're good? Uh, we we keep going if you want. Uh, it, it's fine with me. <laughs> you know, if you have if you have other questions, I'm happy to. I mean, I don't come with talking. questions prepared, really. Or if other questions have occurred to you. No, 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 not at the moment. All the questions I ask, other than say, where are you from and where'd you go to school, they're mm-hmm. all in the moment. There, okay. there are no prepared questions here, right? Because I do want this to be more. This was a the first uh, two thirds of this, or more, where that was. That was really what I strive for, where it's just us talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's much more free form. Uh, yeah, pontificating upon uh, whatever. Yeah. Because, so this is interviewee, interview-ish. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily want that, want it to be an interview. Mm-hmm. More like an interview's, interview's station. Right. Because 
you know, do you even recall if I hit record? No, I didn't uh, see you hit record, but, no. uh, but I, I mean, you know. I don't like the, um, when we do, when people do like real official interviews, it's all, Hey, well, yeah, we have Brian Cinch right on the, on the other end here. Right. So welcome and make a real big show about hitting record and such. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it puts people on guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, they put their walls up. He's like, Oh, um, uh, it's time to, 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 to interview. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course I want the energy being very casual and not so much, um, one sided mm-hmm. because when we think of interviews, it's the interviewer, they could literally not be there. You could just hold up the sheet of questions and then the interviewee will answer them. Mm-hmm. In the end, they're just reading the questions. I do want there to be a back and forth. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah, uh, it went okay. Yeah, all right. went okay. We're done. Uh, we could be okay. Yeah. All right. Ooh, those two do make it a little hot. Mm-hmm.